Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Create Your Own Review button. We look forward to hearing from you. This is part two of two episodes on spirituality and recovery from interpersonal violence. In part one, Dr. Sharon Boland, a licensed clinical social worker and assistant professor at the Raymond A. Kent School of Social Work at the University of Louisville, discussed the quantitative findings of her intervention study on the effects of a spiritually based intervention on recovery from interpersonal violence among older women. Dr. Boland found significant improvement in post-traumatic stress symptoms, depression symptoms, and symptoms of anxiety, as well as improvement in spiritual well-being. In this episode, Dr. Boland delves more deeply into her findings by presenting the qualitative results of her mixed-method study. Dr. Boland discusses emergent themes such as forgiveness, isolation, and strength in the midst of struggle. Dr. Boland also notes the utility of a feminist critique of the harmful and helpful aspects of faith traditions in relation to the experience of interpersonal trauma, as well as the need to make space for discussions of religion in social work. Dr. Elaine Renfret, licensed clinical social worker and adjunct professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Dr. Boland by telephone. So you have quite a few qualitative findings from your study, and if you'd like to talk a little bit about those. One of the things I want to talk about is how women define spirituality and religion, because there's an interesting debate, of course, about how do we define these terms, and there's a movement within religion and spirituality research to put the terms religion and spirituality together, because unfortunately, sometimes there's kind of a dichotomizing that goes on where we talk about religion over here as something that's totally disconnected from spirituality. Religion is bad and spirituality is good. And spirituality is seen as something that happens outside of a congregation or community life. Well, and that may be true for some people, that it may be more of a personal experience with a higher power, with the sacred. But for many other people, there's a connection sometimes between their faith, their their tradition and their spiritual self. They find their spiritual needs are being met within a religious tradition. So it's important not to dismiss a religious tradition. I think that some uh, Thorson probably has a good take on this, which is that you can think of religion as somehow overlapping with spirituality. Maybe if you think of it as a Venn drawing, a Venn diagram, that religion is somehow has an overlap. It may not be the same thing as spirituality, but there are points of intersection. So to dismiss it, particularly if you're working with a, with a group of older adults, might be really missing the boat because many of them do participate in religious kinds of institutions. 
And that seemed to be true for women in my study. One of the things I found was that while I imagined that a lot of women would be disgruntled and have given up on their faith tradition, that many of them had continued to be in a congregation, even though they might have struggles or difficulties, that they continued to be in it. So the majority of participants in my study had some kind of connection with a faith tradition. So that was important. I think as social workers, as practitioners, we often dismiss people's experiences in congregations or we're afraid to talk about them. But in particularly working with older adults, I think that's really going to be essential. There is research that says we need to try not to dichotomize. Marler and Hathaway have an interesting article. Zinn Bauer has an interesting article on this phenomena. So I want to underline that. I was working really hard in the group to try not to dismiss religion, but to make space for talking about that in the context of your spirituality. I think another important lens that we looked through was the women that I worked with, my co-facilitators from the community who were excellent, all had pastoral training. They also Mm -hmm. had pastoral care training. Most of them had been theologically trained. Some of them were actually in a religious tradition. They were critical thinkers. They were people who had questioned their faith and questioned the beliefs uh, that are being taught in a religious tradition. I'd had the privilege of training uh, with some well-known feminist theologians and so was able to bring in a feminist critique as one way of thinking about scripture or thinking about your religious tradition, it was another lens, if you will, through which to look at experience. Not everyone would say that that's something that's meaningful to them, but it provides a way to step back and say, wait a minute, is this something that I really believe? And then what does that mean for my life and for my health? And one of the criteria that we used was what kinds of beliefs are harmful to people and what kinds of beliefs are helpful. That feminist critique is one way of beginning to look at that. So that's another lens through which we looked at the work we were doing. Can you say something about your qualitative findings in regard to what the participants talked about as far as their early and current trauma? I was consistently surprised when they talked about trauma that they often talked about their early experiences. If we were to think about the focus that while their relationships, their current relationships might be problematic, that many of them talked about what had occurred to them as children. And while the focus of the group wasn't on talking about your traumatic experience per se, people needed to tell their stories and that they would talk about these in the context of you know, some of the topics we focused on, for instance, loneliness or anger or depression. The sessions really focused on different topics like that and experiences that women had had early in their lives. One woman discussed her experience in being molested by a youth pastor and that when he had molested her and that came out, that he was forgiven and he was being approached by by the members of the church and welcomed back and so on. But she, on the other hand, was left alone. She had no support and she felt isolated. This was something that she's wrestled with for the rest of her adult life. She's constantly concerned about 
how she fits into the congregation and how she can take claim her power. She's working at claiming her power in a congregation she's in currently. She's director of the ad board and she still feels that she's struggling to be seen and to be heard. These are things that she's carried through her life, challenges and struggles she's carried through her life and still mm-hmm. trying to work that out in a congregational setting. Women who, for instance, grew up in a Catholic tradition who are still questioning whether they should have gotten a divorce. One woman in a an abusive marriage with four kids who, after 10 years, divorced her husband, still questions, and this is 53 years later, whether she should have gotten divorced, whether God sees her decision as wrong. And this is a person who has a strong prayer life, is involved actively in working with other women around their prayer life and providing spiritual care. This is a place in her life that she really struggles, even though she has these other things that are really strengths. That's a theme that occurred over and over again, which is that, I guess in the beginning, simplistically, that women would have struggles and then they'd have strengths. The same person wouldn't have struggles and strengths. I found out something different from what I was expecting, that here's this woman who has a real prayer life and is really deeply devoted to God, but is feeling still, at 53 years later, like she somehow did something wrong. And other women expressed those kinds of sentiments, too, that they'd made decisions, particularly at a time when society didn't honor or support women who were getting a divorce, that they had made decisions to leave a marriage that was abusive, and they didn't feel the support and now are still struggling with the ramifications of that for their spiritual life. So trying to give them an opportunity to discuss that, to to open up about that, to find the places this woman was able to provide support to other women in the groups around their prayer life, but then they were able to provide some support to her around a whole long-term experience of blaming herself around having left a marriage that was abusive. Did the women, by and large, participate in the same congregation they'd always been in? Yes, by and large, they seem to be in the same congregation Mm -hmm. that they'd always been in. I would have thought more women would have left. One of the things that happened in the groups was there were some women who said, oh, you're telling me that you left your congregation and went somewhere else and tried to find a better place or better fit. And now I'm going to take that as permission that I can do the Mm -hmm. same thing. I'll go and I will find a congregation that might be a better Mm -hmm. fit. Riley said... (laughs) Finding a congregation is like like kissing. You have to kiss a bunch of frogs until you find a prince. You have to be prepared to go and look somewhere else if it isn't meeting your needs. I think some women had kind of by default landed in a place and they stayed there. And it was like a wake up to say, oh, nothing's happening here that really meets my needs. There was a dialogue in most groups about uh, this congregation doesn't have any real supports for older women. A lot of times the focus is on how we can care for others. This whole kind of acculturation into being caregivers versus finding out what people need and addressing their particular needs, having an opportunity to sit down and talk about things that are really impacting their lives. So this sense of community that came from the group seemed to be a counter to this lack of community that they experienced many times in their congregation. So in that instance, it certainly sounds like the group really gave them some important permission to think about what they needed and the opportunity to go and look for it. Yes, I think that if there's one thing I would say about the group that was really a key 
the groups was that people were able to give each other permission to talk about taboo topics, mm-hmm. talk about feelings and experiences that they were having, their current relationship to their congregation. There wasn't an attempt to try and solve things for people. It was more of an opportunity to talk about these experiences and then to develop some new resources for trying to address them. Mm-hmm. So women shared a lot of um, different resources that they had used, like poetry or one woman was a yoga instructor and she shared breathing as a way to connect with kind of a sacred source. We, uh, in one group, we brought in some women said they had never read any other version of the Bible other than the King James Version. So we brought in a a number of different versions of the Bible. And just looking at those, people said, like their eyes were opening up saying, oh, (laughs) there are other ways of interpreting some of these scriptures. And it was fascinating because they were saying, well, I'm going to go out now and buy this version or I'm going to try something different. Um, Whereas I think people just previously had been locked into kind of this is the way it is without questioning, all of a sudden they were given permission to question, so they were beginning creatively to think about, well, what is it I need? How am I going to get what I need? Very exciting. Can you talk a little bit more about the the therapeutic group components and the therapeutic experiences that participants had? I think one of the things I haven't mentioned is the work around forgiveness. Forgiveness was an issue that seemed to kind of permeate the groups Um, many of the groups, um, and particularly forgiveness of self. Um, There was discussion of forgiveness of others or perpetrators, but it seemed to me that the focus came back to, this was a theme we've identified as we've done some of the qualitative analysis, that forgiveness was something that continually emerged as something people needed or this capacity to let go, to stop blaming self, to move beyond events. These were all things that were very critical in the recovery process. In session nine, there was a ritual. We enacted a ritual where women wrote on a piece of paper something that they wanted to forgive or something they wanted to let go of. We did not suggest that women should forgive their perpetrators. We had a dialogue or discussion about that. We presented different points of view on that. Women discussed the focus, again, I think I mentioned earlier, on some scriptures and supports around forgiving as quickly as possible. And what we know in working with trauma survivors is that often it's something that comes at the end or maybe doesn't come at all, that sometimes people have to move beyond events and let go. Some kind of forgiveness isn't possible, particularly if you think of forgiveness as something that happens in a relationship. Oftentimes a perpetrator, someone may die or they may be unwilling to acknowledge the harm that they've done. So sometimes forgiveness isn't possible. And sometimes it's not possible because you are unsafe. You're in an unsafe relationship, maybe even a current relationship, where to forgive means you then put yourself in a vulnerable position. So we talked about this, the kind of vulnerabilities that come with forgiving and also the, the kind of need to let go and move on. How do you move on with your life? What do you need to do? So this ritual helped to work with a piece of that with some component of their struggle that they wanted to let go of or that they were choosing to work with. And one of the most poignant stories that came out of that was a woman who had experienced being raped at her workplace. A man had come in and 
hidden in the building. Everyone went home. She was the manager. She was closing the restaurant. And he came out and essentially raped her at knife point, at gunpoint. And she had talked about this in the beginning in the clinical interview and hadn't said much about it in the group. But toward the end of the group's sessions, she acknowledged that she had grown up as a Catholic. This was a woman who, at the current time of the group, was only recognizing nature as the place in which she encountered the sacred and had no formal connections with the Catholic Church any longer. But she was adamant that she was struggling a lot related to her early upbringing, her early kind of belief systems. And in this case, she had been taught that the Virgin Saints had died rather than become sexual victims. Many of the saints were martyred due to some kind of sexual assault or kind of assault on their person. Um, they refused and so they died. And she had not struggled during the rape. This man had a gun at her head. She had submitted and blamed herself for many years about this. And in this group, for the first time, she seemed to be able to acknowledge that she'd held this a deeply, secretly held kind of struggle and began talking about how she was going to let go and stop blaming herself. But it was only when she named, after she named it, and she didn't name it during the clinical interview or in the beginning. This is something that emerged during the group. So that's an example of, of how long-held early beliefs can impact current functioning. That's a really dramatic story and certainly says something about the power of the group that she was able to reveal that after all that time. So types of spiritual resources used to address these issues or to deal with spiritual distress? I think that's a good question because a lot of the things that we did were things that emerged from resources women had in the group. And we also brought in things like we brought in poetry, they brought in poetry, we brought in prayers, types of prayers or meditations that they might use, again, as examples of these are the kinds of things you might use to meditate or to to put yourself in an attitude of connection. There was a lot of talk about different books. Women consistently wrote down books that we brought in that had been helpful, particular types of situations. There were a lot of hymns or Mm. songs that were shared. One of our co-facilitators had played the dulcimer, and she brought in music as a way to talk about the value of music in spirituality, daily devotional books different things were shared. It definitely was a creative endeavor. It wasn't just a canned kind of, this is the book. It was based on the real needs or situations of the people that were coming in. There was quite a bit of discussion about Mother Teresa in a couple of the groups. Mother Teresa's diaries came out and there was a lot of criticism of her kind of loss of faith. Women in the groups that talked about this suggested that They saw her as a real lioness of the faith because she, in spite of her doubts, she persisted forward, which is one of the kind of theological statements that people made that we persist in the face of our doubt, in the face of our challenges. This is a kind of a resilience theme that comes through that, again, they they were able to express their doubt, but also to say, we keep moving forward. We continue to try to seek the sacred. And so there was a real sense of people seeking out God, seeking out counsel seeking out connection 
And this is in spite of some of the challenges that they were finding in their spiritual communities, in their congregational communities. So it was heartening to see how they persisted in Mm -hmm. spite of their challenges. I think another place of interest that's related to aging is the place of their concern about their own adult children. A number of the women had daughters who were in relationships that were abusive and were very concerned about how to support them. I thought it was amazing to think about how little support they had had, many of them, in their own situations and how they were stepping forward to try and protect their grandchildren and trying to work with their daughters. I think about the legacy of abuse and violence, of course, the intergenerational connections. I did see a real sense of concern and and eyes being opened or eyes being open around what was happening with their daughters. And during the groups, several of them had a meaningful interaction with their daughters around abuse and violence. I know I had one woman who had kept calling me to try to get her daughter hooked up with an attorney and was looking for resources and kept feeling like she could call me back and try to do that. There were also some resources in the community that people used. One of them had a a spiritual base. Several of the women continued after the project to interact with a women's center, women's place. And that was very, I guess it was a continuation of what they had begun in the group. And Mm -hmm. then a couple of our groups continued to meet after their participation in the study ended. Those are kinds of indications of the value of the groups for women. Yeah, it really sounds like it opened up a lot of doors that either they weren't aware of or that they were given permission to look inside and see what was there, that they had done that before. So it made a big difference to them. So how would you say that your study provides implications for social work practice? Well, I think there are, well, this is a complex and important area. I'm not sure where we are as a profession with discussing religious and spiritual issues in our work with clients. I've spoken with, this is anecdotal information, but I've spoken with, I've had lots of dialogues with social workers about this, and many people feel, and I agree with them, that we do not have enough training to really be approaching religious and spiritual issues with clients. That is, I think that's accurate. We don't have enough at graduate school. There's an elective spirituality working with spiritual issues with clients. A lot of what we do in that class is we tend to look at the different faith traditions and to value the diversity that exists in faith traditions. But we don't really begin to think about therapeutic interventions related to spirituality. There seems to be more permission with older adults when working with older adults to talk about the spiritual. And perhaps some of those of us who are in gerontology get extra training. But I think formally there's very little and we need to do some continuing education. I think it's going to be coming in the form of continuing education to become more comfortable with religious and spiritual issues. The specific issue that seems to be the hardest for my colleagues is that they don't know what to do when they encounter someone who has different beliefs from them. That seems to be a a really key area of concern. Many of us as social workers don't have a formal tradition that we are connected with. Yet, I think it's important that we connect with pastors in the community who are, let's say, are in support of psychological needs of our clients and spiritual needs of our clients. There are people out there. I, for instance, worked with a pastor in a congregation who was very proactive in the community around violence against women. 
And there were numbers of women in her congregation, numbers of couples and and people in her congregation that were really supportive of that. And that became a, a real haven for people who were struggling with those kinds of issues. And she could address those concerns and not say, okay, you know, women have a choice about whether or not they leave a relationship. And many women don't want to leave their partners. I know, I think there's research out there and some of our models really fall short when women don't want to leave or they're not prepared to leave their partners. Obviously, if there is an issue of safety and it's a mortality issue in terms of risk of loss of life, that's going to be an important decision. But for other people, there may be ways that clergy can be trained to help them work through issues in a relationship. We need to have interdisciplinary models where we can work together to help people resolve their issues. We need to have places, safe havens for women to be when they're trying to sort through those kinds of issues. I can't think of a better place than the congregation to do that. So making connections with clergy in the community that are safe and that have some knowledge of abuse and violence and how to address family violence issues is really critical. I think also being prepared to talk about religious and spiritual struggles, again, trying to explore those, finding colleagues that know how to work with that, referring to other colleagues, other community resources when when those issues arise, because they can be quite debilitating. They can be issues that keep a person stuck in a marriage or in a bad relationship. And there need to be people out there that we can turn to that will help persons sort through options and ways of rethinking, for instance, scripture or beliefs, early training that may not serve. One of my participants in the study said, I need to think about scripture as a mature person of faith, not as a child. You know, I'm left with some of these images and stories and I haven't really grown with them. I haven't, I need to transform some of my understandings to fit more with who I am now and with my life experiences. So that is something I think social workers can help ask some of those questions to help to stimulate that consideration, that thinking. A lot of what we did is ask questions that participants then needed to step back and take a look at their faith. Is that what God wants for you? Do you think God wants you to suffer in a relationship for 35 years and that God really doesn't want you to be safe? Is that your image of of God? Is that who you see God as being? Women had really mixed images of God. Finding out what people's images are, I think, is a really important part of a healing process. Do you have an image of God that's left over from the age of nine? Is your God your father? You know, that there may be some experiences that are really tied with God representing a father figure, like the father we had. And some of us, some of us did not have a good father. There are real problems with God if God is envisioned as a father. Another finding in the study that was unexpected was the number of times women talked about their mothers as abusive. One woman in the study reported her mother had been sexually abusive to her, but many women reported that their mothers had been emotionally abusive to them. And that this is something, again, that may need some type of intervention in terms of just the spiritual a spiritual connection with God. How do we, somebody said, well, I can imagine God as a mother, but my mother was abusive to me too. So thinking about images of God that are 
outside of those kind of parent figures. How do we go about that? So people need assistance with rethinking who it is that is the creator, who is the sacred image. Maybe it's not a person anymore. Some women said that they imagined God as a as a rock or they had different kinds of God as a calming presence, God as living water, different images that needed to be brought forward and that could be brought forward in an interaction with a social worker who is open to talking about the spiritual and understands how we get stuck in images that may not serve us in terms of being able to live a healthy life. You bring up some challenges for social work practice. I don't know if your study even addressed this, but any thoughts about how social workers might begin to make that transition themselves to increase Mm -hmm. their comfort level in doing Mm -hmm. this? Well, I do think that I found that what I needed to do was I needed to really talk with pastors. Of course, I may have gone farther than some of us need to go, but I, I took courses in a seminary. I felt like I needed, because really, when people's worlds are turned upside down, we turn to the sacred. And a lot of times when we're working with our clients, we see them turning to something outside of themselves, larger than themselves, that can help them cope. And are those resources there? Are they in place? Are they, are they problematic? Are they unworkable? Just as a facet of our humanity and our wholeness, we need to know about as a way to help them. I have a list of congregations that I refer to, and I don't necessarily say go to this congregation. I just talk about these are some places that people are open to understanding you as a whole person, and they're willing to have a conversation with you, not so much to dogmatically put you in a place where there's some particular point of view, but to help you sort through your struggles. I think especially social workers in long-term care in places of working with older adults ought to be able to talk about spiritual issues with our clients. I had a student who was working in a long-term care facility and she came in to see me. She had worked with a veteran. He was a survivor of trauma and abuse during World War II and he was in the process of dying and he was talking about going to hell, which is a real spiritual crisis. And there wasn't anyone that she was aware of who could come in who had the training to deal with that. The facility brought in pastors from the community that may or may not have been trained in clinical pastoral education. It appeared that they weren't, meaning they hadn't had extra training in how to address issues. I know that chaplains do have that training and often are very good at dealing with diversity and dealing with different kinds of frameworks that people bring into some kind of interaction. Of course, they're in the hospital setting usually and not necessarily available to us on a regular basis. But finding people that can address those issues is really critical. So here she was in this facility and she couldn't find anyone. And so she wound up talking with this guy. And she didn't even have a, she's not religious. He was expressing his feelings about his own kind of coming out of his own faith tradition. I don't remember exactly what that was. But she began singing hymns with him. He began trying to talk about something positive 
that he could hold on to. And she began singing hymns with him. And it seemed in having a conversation with him about his experiences in World War II. So that seemed to ease his mind. And it's a question of being willing to step up to the plate, might be trying something. And then if it doesn't work, trying to seek assistance, finding someone who's a spiritual counselor who's on the outside of your work that you can contact and, and talk with about these things. Reading some good books out there. There's a book on spiritually integrated psychotherapy by Ken Pargament. Ken Pargament is one of the leaders in working with spiritual issues in psychotherapy or in counseling situations. I think that's a really excellent set of resources that you've given us. Well, thank you so very much for taking the time to do this and giving a really well-rounded and detailed discussion about your work. It's very important, and I'm really pleased that you could be a member of our podcast family. I'm really glad to be there and (laughs) appreciated our interaction. I felt there were were some real dialogical movement there, and I I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Me too. It's great. Thanks so much. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Dr. Sharon Boland discuss the qualitative findings of her research on spirituality and recovery from interpersonal violence. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.